angel in front of our house and her wings were like sails last night. And I looked outside at maybe 11 o'clock and the poor thing had like gone in half. So I had to go save the angel. Um, and she's, she's okay, I know you're concerned. Um, but I hope you all are safe after all of that wind last night. So just a little housekeeping. We have three weeks now between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So this week and then two more weeks before we take a break at Christmas, three weeks on and then three weeks off. So the week before and after Christmas and then the week after th uh, New Year's, we will not meet. And so we'll come back on January 11th. Your bookmark schedule, I believe, should have that information there for you. And Bub's finalizing the spring schedule, but it will begin on January 11th. And so not the Wednesday after New Year's, but two Wednesdays after New Year's. And so she'll send all that out. Um, she sends a weekly um, note with all of that in it as well. If you do not get Bub's weekly emails, then please do sign up before you leave today. Or if you're online, then you can visit stmichael.org slash RBS and send Bub an email and she'll get you on that list so that no one shows up when we are not here, which is a bummer. And so just a reminder that we've got all these on our podcasts. People are really listening to the podcast. It's great. Um, and if you've not done some of the studies we've done in the past, they're all available now. Wherever you do your podcasts, um, they should be there. And a reminder that we've got our commentaries in the St. Michael Bookshop. So if you've not been following along or if you've misplaced or you've, someone told me they gave theirs away. And so we still got uh, just a handful of copies in the bookshop right here at St. Michael. Let's have a prayer and then we'll get going. Actually, while everyone gets seated, yeah, don't sit all the way in the back. Come on forward, Episcopalians, come on forward. Um, Reminder, as everyone's kind of getting settled and seated before we say our prayer, that questions are great. I know you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving because we didn't receive any questions last week. And so I hope that you had a wonderful break. And if you've got questions this morning, we are actually finishing up 1 Samuel today and finishing up Saul's kingship. And so we're going to get to all of that. And now that everyone's kind of found their spots, let's have a prayer and we'll kick off. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, in this season, we give you great thanks. Thanks for bringing us together safely. Thanks for giving us special time with family, friends, and loved ones. We ask you to continue to watch over all those who are traveling over these next few weeks, either to us or we to them. Be with those who are seeking after you the most, that we can be a place of hospitality to help connect them to you. Open all of our hearts and minds for this next hour. Let us have space inside for your spirit to fill us up and to transform us that we can be your hands and feet of love in the world to extend your kingdom here on earth. I ask your prayers upon all those who need your healing touch today, those known to us that we hold in our hearts and minds, and those unknown to us, that you will be present and that you will lift them up. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I noted, today we finish 1 Samuel. The whole scope of this year is 1st and 2nd Samuel and a little bit of 1st Kings. That's really where we're going. And so in the spring, we're going to be doing a lot more of 2nd Samuel and then we end with just a couple weeks of 1st Kings. Because as you remember, the Israelites come out of Egypt, they claim the promised land, they raise up a kingdom, and then the kingdom divides north and south, devolves for a little bit, and then the kingdom falls and the Israelites, the Jewish people are taken into exile. So right now, as we look at the character of David, 
We're really going to finish this year with the Israelites going into exile down into 1 Kings. And so that's going to kind of be the, the kind of conclusion of this arc. We've been getting to know David as a person, but David has not yet become king. That will happen next week. And so right now we finish up 1 Samuel, which is essentially the story of Saul. And then we go to 2 Samuel next week, which really is the story of David. It's not quite that cut and dry, but that's more or less the macro arc of those stories. And so to set up today, we're going to put a little bit in context. We've got three sections of today's study. The first is that Saul seeks after a medium. The second is David outside of Israel. And the third is the death of Saul. To set up these three sections, a reminder that Samuel has died. Now, there's no explicit prophet in the court right now. Samuel is there. Nathan is coming. He's coming. But right now, we are kind of in between prophets. Saul has relied a lot on Samuel's presence. Well, I guess he relied a lot on Samuel's presence in the early kingship period. Then he began to grow apart from Samuel. Samuel left and then Samuel died. Saul is now kind of left alone. In chapter 27, which is before today's study, it was the end of two weeks ago, David flees Saul's court pretty much for good. Saul tried to kill him multiple times. David escaped with Jonathan's help and with Michal's help, but he kept coming back. Then David finally said, enough, we gotta go. And so David and his men, his wives, their families, everyone left Saul's court, and they really left Israel proper. They're almost kind of in the unincorporated area of the promised land. And so David's out there in the wilderness. Saul's left by himself. No prophet, no David to play the liar and to calm him down. And Saul begins to really lose his mind. David, meanwhile, has gone off to essentially find sanctuary with the Philistines. King Ashish of the Philistines is the one who kind of welcomes David in as, I guess you would say he had to flee like, um, whatever. Um, David is safe out in the wilderness. And King Hashish is about to battle Israel, about to go and storm the nation of Israel against Saul. And that's going to be part of today's story. But for now, David is gone. Saul is there. And we get to the point where Saul is so distraught with Samuel's death and with his inability to hear God's voice, that he goes off seeking to hear God's voice in a very unorthodox and very non-Jewish and illegal way. So let's look at chapter 28. And we're going to read a bit of this because as we've seen a lot in 1 Samuel, the storytelling here is so good. It's not just a bunch of facts and figures. There really are pretty phenomenal stories going on. And so as we get into chapter 28, Samuel has died. David has flown. The Philistines have now mounted on Israel's border. And King Saul knows that they are assembling for an attack. Saul is trying to figure out what to do. And so he goes after trying to hear God's voice and simply cannot. Someone's getting a phone call. Can you not hear it? They're still getting it. I know, someone's really trying to call and not getting a response. Where's it coming from? There it goes, good, went to voicemail. Okay, here we go. So Saul feels alone 
and he cannot hear God's voice. And so he goes off to seek a medium, a witch. And we find out that the witches and the wizards had been cast out of Israel, which sounds so exciting. And so Saul disguises himself to go speak with one of these. So look at chapter 28, verse 8. We'll read a little bit here just because it's, I think it's kind of good stuff. Chapter 28, verse 8. Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and went there to see the medium, he and two men with him. They came to the woman by night, and he said, Consult a spirit for me, and bring up for me the one whom I name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the wizards from the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He answered, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Have no fear. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the ground. He said to her, What is his appearance? She said, An old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. So Saul knew that it was Samuel. I don't know. Maybe he's the only old man with a robe on. Okay. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did obedience. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have summoned you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you just as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And we'll stop there. Oh man, that's good stuff. So. I don't know if you all, I mean, those of you who read ahead knew this was going to happen, but for those of you who may not have read this, this is such a funny scene. I mean, I don't know that a lot of people think things like this are even in the Bible. So do you get what's happening here? Samuel is dead and in the ground. And so Saul goes out to seek counsel from a medium, a, a fortune teller. I mean, it's literally almost like crystal ball style stuff. They're right, they're lighting the candles, they're moving the Ouija board wedge. I mean, she's like calling it all up. And then all of a sudden she sees him come out of the ground and he comes and he talks to Saul. And this is like straight movie style stuff right here. It seems so very unbiblical that this entire scene happens. That is really the point. When you put yourself in the shoes of the storyteller, what is really the objective here? Is it to prove to us that we can go light some candles and have a seance and talk to dead people? Or is it really to show that Saul has completely lost all connection and rootedness to Yahweh. I think it's the latter. I think what is really happening here is this storyteller is putting such an exclamation point on Saul's uh, inability to be God's king anymore. Samuel comes from the ground 
to say to Saul, if you have not connected these dots and put this puzzle together, all of this is happening because God is done with you and God has handed the kingdom over to David. You're just simply in the way now. But don't fear, because tomorrow you join me. I mean, how great is that? I love that line. I think that is so good. I mean, it's so like, you know, it's like the um, ghost of Christmas future or something like that. It's like, here you come. Um, and so we get this scene here that really finalizes Saul's disconnection from being God's leader for Israel. And so this experience really sets Saul off. So what I won't read for you, but after this section, Saul basically has like a mental break. I mean, he passed, he gets the vapors and he falls out and everyone starts to attend to him and saying like, come sit and eat. And I mean, the medium, this person who's like afraid Saul's gonna kill her is like, have some bread. And so Saul just completely dissolves in front of everybody. And the medium and his two men have to like physically lift him back up and then take him home. Saul's grief is severe here. Saul's just been told, tomorrow you die. And so Saul sees everything that he is trying to be, live for is going to just fall apart in front of him. Not only him, but his sons. I mean, this is a bad, bad omen that this woman has given him. But here's the thing that I want us to know. Now we know what's gonna happen. We know that Saul's gonna die. We know David's gonna become king. We know that's kind of part of God's big plan. But if we put ourselves in Saul's shoes, we also know what it's like to have a moment where we're sort of called to attention, that life is not going the way it should, that we are not perhaps behaving or making choices the way we should, and we always have a moment where we can change, where we can turn, where we can get on to a different path. We are never too far gone. Saul hears this medium, speaks with Samuel, and essentially feels like all is lost. For us, we need to understand that if we ever reach that moment in time, all is not lost. We are never so far gone that we can't change and turn and make things better. That's the whole idea of our faith. I mean, Jesus essentially comes to say to us, you can turn back toward God anytime. It doesn't matter what you've done, you can always turn. And we have these moments in our church year, like Lent, where we really are called to repent. And it's not about being guilty, and it's not about self-flagellation. It's not about guilt. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about just being honest enough to say what we've been doing and who we are is not the best of who we can be. It's not really all we were created to be, and we can get on a better path. But it takes courage, and it does take faithfulness. And there needs to be that little germ of hope in us in order to turn and do something better. And Saul has essentially reached such a point of despair that he sees no other alternative. There is no path forward. And perhaps the storyteller is intending that to be the way the story is told. But for us, there's knowing what's in the scripture, and then there's how we live a life of faith. And I don't want us to ever think that there is ever a point at which there is no hope. Despair is dangerous, but hope, no matter how small, I mean, Jesus says, like a mustard seed, hope can help make any change we need to make at any point in our lives. Let me see. 
Any thoughts or questions about that before I just keep rattling on? I'm like in danger of preaching, so any questions? <laughs> Nothing? Hmm. This makes me think of Dead Man Walking. Do you all remember that movie? If you've never, oh my gosh, I saw people shake their heads, no, hold on, okay. So, uh, sorry, that hurt, that hurt. Um, so, this is what helped me, 95 maybe, like 1995-ish, mid-90s. Um, this is Susan Sarandon and, what's his face? Sean Penn, thank you. Um, and it was such a stunner movie. If you've never seen it, so someone's calling to tell you you should watch Dead Man Watching. Um, Dead Man Walking, add this to your list. This is a movie for you to watch. It is timeless in the sense that there's no CGI, there's no weird technology that is now out of date. I mean, there's nothing that's gonna take you out of the story, but it's essentially about a nun who cares for a man on death row who did a terrible thing. And there is at the very end, I mean, spoiler alert, the end of the story is this moment of repentance that is so stunningly beautiful in what happens between these two people. I mean, it is like, talk about like a boohoo movie. My children constantly, when we watch movies or TV shows where there's emotional moments, will all like turn and wait, to, like see if I'm crying yet because I'm the first one to cry. Um, and so it's, that's what this is. And it gives you all the feels, but it's also so profoundly challenging to the way I think the world wants us to understand bad or choices that hurt or violence or um, unethical, immoral activity, whatever that is, whatever kind of categorization you want to give, this challenges point blank the idea that the world says there are things that one can do that makes us bad forever versus what we hear from Jesus, which is nothing that we ever do can separate us from God's love and grace. And Susan Sarandon, who represents the nun in the story, is trying to break through to Sean Penn's character who did a horrible thing to make sure he knows that he, nothing he has done can separate him from God's love. And it is, I remember when it came out, I will not remind you how old I was, um, but I remember when it came out that it was really hard for a lot of people to accept the complexity of that story. And I think it is good for us to be challenged to understand that there is no limit to God's grace. Samuel in this moment, I'm sorry, Saul in this moment, seems to understand a limit to God's love. And I think that we could carefully and respectfully say that the entire Old Testament, in a sense, understands God's love as limited. And what we see in the New Testament is a genuine revelation of God's limitless love for us. Now, what I would argue is there were people along the way in the Old Testament narrative who misunderstood God's love as being limited. God's love has never been limited, but it took Jesus to actually kind of break through and get the attention of particularly the Jewish people to say, 
what you have perceived of God is not complete. And what I'm showing you is something that is complete. And I certainly know a lot of my Jewish friends now actually think that was totally right. And they may not identify as Christian, but the teaching of God's boundless love is true and consistent with really what had happened all the way through the Old Testament. And so we can, I think, strike a respectful balance in the way that we understand what is presented in a story like this and then what is presented in the Gospels. Okay, so Dead Man Walking, that's on your list. I haven't even told you about going to see The, um, the Chosen in movie theaters over Thanksgiving. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Nice, Judy. I mean, I don't know if that had, I mean, if there's something more to that than just the awful person, you're going to be dead, or, but because he says it differently. I like that. Okay, so there's the, there's the note here that the way Samuel says this, um, tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, sounds really similar to what Jesus says to the thief on the cross, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. Um, I don't see, I don't want to ever, hmm. the Old Testament for me is never predictive. And so I think we have to be careful. And this, this differs from many, if you watch, you know, non-denominational preachers or someone like that, um, you often get an interpretation of the prophets as intentionally predictive of Jesus. And I think that the prophetic promise of the Messiah set up a way to understand Jesus. But to say that people like the great prophets or right here, Samuel, somehow understood what was to come and so said things in a very specific way is a little too far. But is it possible that the gospel writers knew of this and that was kind of in them, and so it came out in a similar way, perhaps. Or more so that what Samuel is saying, not just you'll die, but there's something beyond death. I mean, there's, there's something <clears throat> not comforting because you're telling him he's going to die. Oh, and your sons are going to die. You know what, Judy? I like that. You make Samuel out to be much nicer than me. Um, <laughs> I kind of read this whole thing like... Samuel being cheeky and kind of getting back at Saul, but I think that's so much nicer. So that is the charitable interpretation of today's lesson, is that Samuel is providing a hopeful message to Saul in a sense, like there's more to come. Um, and I think that's lovely. Jewish theology does not really have a solid understanding of something after death. And that's hard. It's, it's like, you know, what do Christians think of heaven? Well, of course, any denominational group and many categories within that denominational group understand heaven differently. So for me to say, like, Jewish people think X about something, is that's too simple. But in general, um, Judaism does not have a concept of, like, walking in heaven today, or, you know, like, grandma looking down on us from heaven. That's, that's not a thing. You sort of, for Jews, you really 
dying is just being dead. There is a promise of a resurrection in the future, yes. And that's one of the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, in the first century, is you had one sect of Judaism, essentially, one denomination of Judaism that believed in that full resurrection and that kind of after-death experience, and then one that didn't. They just thought, you're dead. Um, and that's always been a bit of a struggle in Judaism, but one thing that has been pretty consistent is that there is no sense of being in a good place like a heaven until the resurrection. Most Jews either thought the resurrection is going to come and remake everything or that isn't going to happen and death is just the end. We understand that there is something happening between our death and the second coming and the recreation that is promised. What that experience is Obviously, we don't know, but I think it can be um, it can be made a bit too romantic. I think that we often see it as something that is too much like the way we perceive the world now, just better. And I think that we need to be careful not to. It's almost like personifying um, God in a way that makes sense to us, when I think God's always much bigger than that. And we can say there's something, but because Jesus does say, today you'll be with me in paradise, well, I mean, we have to kind of say something happens. What that something is, is almost certainly not the way we understand how we function in the world. And so I do like, though, that this could be interpreted as a gift to Saul. Like, a bad thing will happen, but then you will actually be with me. That's not the end. And we say that in our funeral services. Essentially, death is not the end, it's just a change. And you kind of get that hint here with Samuel's words to Saul. Other thoughts or questions? All right, well then let's keep going. Section two today, is David outside Israel? So essentially, after chapter 28, which is Saul kind of coming apart, we get a couple chapters, 29 and 30, that's just kind of David doing some stuff outside of Israel. So we know that David took his wives, his men, um, I think at some point it says 600 men or 400 men, um, they go out and they essentially set up a camp, kind of a base camp outside of what is Saul's controlled territory. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Saul is the first king over all of Israel, but Saul was not the military or political leader that David becomes. When we think of a unified kingdom, that doesn't really happen until David is king. Saul is a single king, but doesn't really control territory and unify the tribes like David does. And so when David leaves Saul's court, he almost certainly doesn't have to go that far to be in what is land that is almost certainly Israel, but it's not really Saul's influence. Does that make sense? His, Saul's political and military influence was limited. David's is unifying and much more of an umbrella over all Israelite tribes. So David's probably not that far away, but David's certainly close enough to the Philistines that the Philistines offer him sanctuary and 
kind of protection. That's implied, it's not made explicit, but essentially David's gone over, he's found King Ashish, who is the king of the Philistines at this time, and David, in a sense, dupes the Philistines into thinking that he is not still yoked to or loyal to Saul. David goes about having a few little battles where he wins the battles, and they're against Israel's enemies, but he says to the Philistine king that they are actually against Israel itself. And so he walks this very fine line where he gets the Philistines protection, but he doesn't actually do anything against Israel or against Yahweh. Does that make sense? You can read it, it's easy to read. We're just not gonna really focus on chapter 29 right now. Just to say, they've made base camp in a place called Ziklag. And that's going to be more important in chapter 30. So in chapter 30, David has essentially come to the Philistines. He sees that they are mounting an attack against Israel. And he's kind of marching to the attack with the Philistines. Well, the Philistines see the, he the they call them the Hebrews in scripture, um, see the Jewish people, David and his crew, and says, what are these people doing here? And the king says, oh, well, David's a good guy. Don't worry about it. He can be with us. And the leaders of the Philistine army basically say, you might think he's a good guy, and he doesn't have to go back to Israel, but he can't come with us to this battle, which is wise, because David has not actually done anything against Israel. And could he possibly have been, he and his men, been like a Trojan horse in the Philistine army when they go to attack Israel? Could have been. But the, Isra uh, the Philistine army leaders see that David could be a threat to them and sends David away. And so David and his men, who had been with the Philistine army, are sent back to their base camp at Ziklag. The Philistines continue on to mount an attack against Saul and Israel. In the meantime, David and his men go back to Ziklag. So are we clear? You've got Philistines marching toward Israel. Saul and the Israelite armies are going out to meet them. David and his little crew have gone elsewhere to where they had their base camp. In chapter 30, when David and his crew get back, they realize that the Amalekites have attacked their base camp. And so let's look at chapter 30, verse 8. Just a little story of David, but this is getting at David's character. And so we had a story of Saul and Saul's character. Saul gets concerned and so goes to seek a medium whom he had already made illegal and then falls out because he calls the dead back to life. Now we get a picture of David's character. Chapter 30, verse 8. Let's read just a little of this. David has gone back with his men, found out the, that the Amalekites have attacked their camp, and they've taken women and children prisoner. And so chapter 30, verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this band, the Amalekites? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, he and the 600 men who were with him. They came to the Wadi Besor, where they, those stayed who were left behind. But David went on the pursuit, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besor. That's a river, Wadi is basically uh, water. Jump to verse 16. When he had taken him down, 
They were spread all over the ground, eating, sorry, Verse 16, he finds an Egyptian, the Egyptian takes him to the Amalekites, and then David says, he sees the Amalekites, and they were spread all over the ground, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great amount of spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Verse 17, David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. No one of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought everything back. David also captured all the flocks and herds which were driven ahead of the other cattle. People said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been exhausted, too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the Wadi Besor. They went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. When David drew near to the people, he saluted them. Then all the corrupt and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may take his wife and children and leave. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has, he has preserved us and handed us over to the raiding party that attacked us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For the share of the one who goes down into battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. From that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel. It continues to the present day. And we'll stop there. Here is a scene that gives us David's character. Now, it's likely that we all know this, but just to be clear and on the same page, most of the time in the ancient world, when a group of people went to fight a battle, they were paid by whatever junk they could steal from the people who lost the battle. And so the idea that a, an army like David's 400 men who overtake the Amalekites could take all of their stuff and then divide it among themselves, that's essentially how soldiers made money. That was how they were compensated. And so people were incentivized to go and fight because you might get really lucky and hit a payday where you get a bunch of gold and jewels and food and herds and whatever. And so these 400 men who went off and fought the Amalekites expect that they would be able to keep all the spoils. And so as they returned to the 200 who were too exhausted to go with them, they made it very clear, they don't get our stuff. We went and we fought, we get to keep all the good stuff because essentially we get paid. And David says, no, no, that's not how that works. We may have been the ones who fought, but they were the ones who stayed with the baggage. I mean, I, you have to think it's probably more than baggage, um, but they basically stayed with all the stuff. And so they did some work too. Maybe they weren't physically fighting, but what they did was also valuable to us. And so everything we earn, the spoils of that battle, will be shared among everybody. And so David is, in a sense, beginning to create a culture in which all boats rise. We are not just out for number one anymore. We take care of our own. We take care of everybody who is here within us, like our family, our little village, our little tribe takes care of each other. We may be able to work today. They may be able to work tomorrow. One way or the other, no matter who goes and does the work, everyone benefits. That is a very unusual thing to say. In fact, I expect that he would have gotten pushback from the men who went to fight, but he has set that culture. And then it says in verse 25, from that day forward, 
That was a statute and ordinance for all of Israel. The, Israel, the Israelites, the Jewish people, tended to have a much higher consideration of taking care of the needy than other groups in that region. Where that comes from is almost certainly not this moment. But David gets credit for that kind of cultural expectation of caring for the entire group. And why? Because the storyteller wants David to be a whole lot better than Saul. So I hope we get beyond the details of the story to simply say Saul has lost it. Not only has David not lost it, David's still talking to God. Did you notice at the very beginning? David said, hey God, what should I do? And God said, go get him. But David is more generous than is even expected of him to be. And so now we've got a huge dichotomy that is drawn between Saul and David. David's really great. Saul really sucks. And so now David is teed up to be the king everyone wants him to be. All right, any questions about this little interlude of David before we get to Saul's death? Oh, <laughs> yes. So I didn't read that part, did I? No. So, um, and, and Ifat is a, it's a thing that you wear. Um, he, hold on. I'll get there. I had it marked in here. I want to actually read this section. It's, what, 30? I'm in the wrong chapter. Thank you. Um, So, in verse 7 of chapter 30, an ephod is referenced. An ephod is an article of clothing, but it is related to a sacred garment. So, it would almost be like a cassock or an alb or something like that. Um, I can't tell you specifically that it's only what royalty or priests wear, but it is part of what sets someone apart for a sacred duty. And so it's almost certainly David is being described as someone who put on the right clothes before going and talking to God. So it's kind of like, you know, when you go to church on Sunday, you dress a bit nicer because you're going to be with God, even though it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. I tell my children all the time, God does not care. You go to church however you're dressed. But if you've got the time, it's nice to look a little better because it kind of puts you in the right mindset. It's sort of like lighting a candle or getting on your knees or doing something like that. You almost physically do something that shifts your mind so that you can be in the right frame of mind to speak with or understand or feel the presence of God. If we think about the idea of repentance, I think that that's part of what we all get the opportunity to do, whether that's seasonally, you know, Advent and Lent and think moments like that, or whether it's 
daily or weekly, like we come to church on Sunday and we kind of get ourselves ready to prepare ourselves to actually experience and receive those little nudges from God is important. Because that nudge could be from a fellow church member. That nudge could be as you're praying. That nudge could be from a preacher. That nudge could be in many different ways. If we're not open to and ready to see or note or receive those nudges, they will just simply bounce off of us. We all all of us function in our lives with kind of a little shield up. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but we kind of have a persona, whether we're a professional or we're a parent or we're a child or we're a friend or whatever that is, we kind of put on our identity and then we go about the world doing that. And if we don't take a moment to be intentional about setting that aside or opening ourselves up, then oftentimes God's nudges just bounce off of us. And so by giving us an opportunity to focus and to attend to and to try and look for those moments where God's trying to get at us, we could miss God's voice. What I like about that note is that David somehow prepares himself to then go talk to God. I want us to be very comfortable acknowledging that when the Bible says God said something and a person said something back to God, that may not have literally been happening in real time. Like it's not voice from the clouds and then you talk back to the sky. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I think that oftentimes the Bible says God said a thing and then that person spoke back to God. I've pretty much always understood that not to be literal. That is something that is explaining one's capacity to perceive and relate to God. I can't tell you how many times in my career someone has said, why doesn't God speak to me like God spoke to people in the Bible? That's the problem, is that the literal voice out loud of God in the Bible is probably certainly not what happened. But as a story is told, the story is very firmly, faithfully espousing God's presence to these people. And the way that that story is told is God said X, and then I said Y back. We might tell that kind of story if we have a particularly excellent prayer experience where we really feel God's presence or we really get some kind of genuine clarity about a decision that we have to make or about a way that we might navigate a difficult moment of conflict with a loved one or you name it. As if we were to tell that story, not literally, but in a figurative or metaphorical or in a meaningful way, we might say, God told us to X. Did you actually hear a voice? No. But did you feel like God was there and you got clarity? Yes. And so I do think that here what we see is David's genuine capacity to humble himself to hear God's voice in a very real way. So ephods are a little different depending on the time period you're talking about, but essentially it's like a, it's almost like a little tunic. I mean, you might even think of it as like a little apron. This is not a large piece of clothing, first off. It's also not a grand piece of clothing. It is not 
something you would wear to impress anybody. It's something that you wear to, in a sense, humble and prepare yourself for God. I mean, it's almost like the white albs that we wear at church. I mean, no one's making a fashion statement in a white alb, but it does kind of get us in the mindset to be in a particular role or place ourselves to then help to facilitate that for everyone else who is there to worship. Thank you. Any other questions or thoughts? My timing is good today. I'm very proud of myself. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Section three, we're gonna talk about the death of Saul. Now we are at the end of Saul's kingship. This is the day in which Saul's kingship ends. This is also the final chapter of 1 Samuel. And so 1 Samuel really does close the chapter of Saul with his death. Now we've obviously gotten to know David pretty well, but David has not yet been king. And so Saul's kingship is really trying to set David up for the better version of the king that everyone wants. And so if it hadn't been clear enough through all of the stories over the last 10 plus chapters, Saul's not the king Israel deserves or needs. That will come very clear in this chapter. The Philistines have mounted an attack on Israel and we get the battle right here in the beginning of chapter 31. And chapter 31 is not long. We get that battle moment. The Philistines are indeed overwhelming Israel's forces that Saul Saul is leading. And we essentially get the fulfillment of the promise the medium made. Now, the medium, I, I firmly believe the medium is not predicting the future, but the medium told Saul what was gonna happen if he stayed on this path. And that's a subtle nuance difference. But I do think Saul gets the opportunity to make a change. Saul does not. And so what the medium said would happen ends up happening because Saul is essentially pig-headed or however you want to describe him and just powers on in the very same direction. Let's look at chapter 31 and we're just gonna read most of it because it's, again, it's a good story. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and many fell on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Aminadab and Malchijah, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer was unwilling, for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news of the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Astart, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bet-Chen. But when the inhabitants of 
of Gabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men set out, traveled all day long, all night long, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bechen. They came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. The end comes fast. It's only a few verses. And Saul's end is tragic. It is sort of the definition of a tragic end. And it should be noted that depending on how you interpret a few other moments, there are six, maybe seven people in the entire Bible who actually die by suicide. Two of them are right here, Saul and his armor bearer. Six-ish of those seven are in the Old Testament, the only one in the New Testament being Judas. Thank you. So Saul's death here is highly unusual. Suicide's not okay. It is not something looked upon as an honorable death. I mean, the way this is described, Saul's trying to claim some sort of dignity or honor by not allowing the enemy to kill him. He controls his own death. And although we may sympathize with what Saul is doing here, it is important to note that this is perhaps, the, Saul and Judas, Judas are really the two most high profile suicides in the Bible. And so something for us to potentially wrestle with a little bit. Um, another that you certainly um, would remember would be Samson. Um, Samson tied to the pillars of, again, the Philistines. And he prays to God for the strength one more time to die with the Philistines. So he pulls the columns down and the thousands of people in the house die with Samson. So Samson essentially pulls the building down on top of himself and kills himself. Um, but does so in order to exact revenge or righteous judgment or whatever you want to say on Samson, I mean, on the Philistines. So the Philistines, they're problematic for a long time. Um, they've been around for a bit and they constantly cause them trouble. Um, but here we have the Philistines again. And so what happens here with Saul's death is that the Philistines have essentially kind of overtaken Israel. Saul has lost, but David's right there in the door. David's not physically at this battle because David is away at Ziklag and he's doing this other thing like chasing after the Amalekites. And so the way the story is told is quite clever. If the Philistines, obviously I think at some point the Philistines overtook Israel. Could David have stopped the Philistines? We probably have to say yes. So then why didn't he? Well, conveniently, David had been told by God to go after the Amalekites. Some were totally different. And so the loss to the Philistines was not really Israel's loss. The way the storyteller tells the story, it was Saul's loss. And it was not David's loss by being absent or not paying attention or doing something on his own. God told him to pursue the Amalekites. And so God's following, I mean, David is following God's words and isn't there to help defend Israel against the Philistines. So what we will see when we get into 2 Samuel is David essentially hears what happens, comes running, and he will then send the Philistines out and he will reclaim the area and he will then unify the tribes. And all of that certainly happened historically 
whether it happened because of all of these particular dots being connected the way the storyteller is telling it, eh, that's not that important. What's important is that the storyteller, and certainly Israel, finds it highly important that David is separated from this big loss in a very meaningful and intentional way, but then comes back after this loss and saves Israel from the evil Philistines. Thoughts or questions? I don't want to talk too much about the suicide stuff unless you're interested. Um, yes? Um, just a quick question. Jonathan was such a good egg, <laughs> and they make so little of him at the end. And I realize the storytellers are just winding it up and wanting to focus on Saul and his death, but they just kind of rub him out. And... It is sort of a bummer that Jonathan doesn't get much of a death scene, does he? No, I know. Um, it's, it's true. I mean, you, if you were to look at this, at 1 Samuel in particular, from a literary perspective, it is very clear the goal, story by story by story, of the storyteller. And of course, I've said this a hundred times, but you know, this was essentially finalized at the end of or even after the exile. There is purpose in the stories being told this way and in this sequence. Remember weeks and weeks ago, I mean probably six plus weeks ago, we had a number of stories of Saul as he became king that seemed, Saul almost became king multiple times. And then David almost was anointed multiple times because you had different threads of the tradition. And that makes sense within tribes. I mean, if you think about tribes, imagine it being like the United States. You may have stories of the founding of the US that are told one way in Texas differently than in Michigan, than in California, than in Florida. I mean, everyone kind of in different regions has different ways of telling the same story. And if one were to gather together the definitive story, you would essentially almost have to choose one. And so what the writers here in 1 Samuel did is they just didn't choose. They took a couple of the origin stories of Saul's kingship, and they took a couple of the origin stories of David's anointing, and they just sort of put them both in, and they didn't worry about it. Because for them, I mean, this is again one of those great examples of the storytellers are not meaning to tell a historic story. They're meaning to tell a theological story. And if we read it as only history, we are missing the better value of these stories, which is why we try to read literately and not literally, because we will get totally wrapped around the axle of what happened when and first and second and all that sort of stuff if we make this literal. Instead, just figure out where the stories are and what matter to the storytellers, because all of that connects with where the Jewish people went in the second temple period when they returned from the exile and they raised up the temple again, why did that particular group of Jews feel so strongly that David had to be differentiated from Saul in such a significant way? And what we will find in 2 Samuel is that David's mistakes are way worse than Saul's mistakes. I mean, Saul made bad mistakes, sure, but David's mistakes are a whole other level of bad. And yet, David is lifted up, and why? It is absolutely because of this idea of repentance. 
Saul again and again, and we saw it with the medium, refuses to repent, refuses to change, refuses to turn and apologize and seek forgiveness. And David, every time he does even worse stuff, he repents and he humbles himself in front of God. And that kind of repentance, that's the key for us. That's our learning between Saul and David. It's not doing the least wrong stuff. That's not actually the better way. The best way is when you do the bad stuff, you repent. And that's why David is lifted up and, told, and his story is told in this very specific way. And we'll see a whole lot more of that. I mean, it gets bad, y'all. It's just, it is bad. <laughs> there are stories and you'll say, ha! Huh. I mean, I don't know if you, I was talking to my mother um, a few weeks ago because my middle daughter was confirmed um, earlier in November. And uh, grandparents were all here and we were just chatting about, because she watches this. And I was saying, just wait, there's this story and this story. And she, and I told, I told one story to David, she said, that's in there? Yeah, just wait. I mean, it's bad. It's not, it's not okay. Um, and you'll think, not, uh, how? I hope as we read through this, I, not that I hope, but I expect that as we read through 2 Samuel, you will say to yourself multiple times, how is this guy the great King David? Because it's just terrible decision-making. And just things you think, nobody does that. I mean, not even like bad people do that. I mean, this is like beyond just normal bad person. Terrible. All right, any last thoughts or questions before we break? All right, end of 1 Samuel. We start 2 Samuel next week. Thank you all. Have a great day.